I'm Taz. And I'm Matthew. And welcome to Middle Ground on Front Porch Report. Today on Middle Ground, we will be discussing the dangers of tribalism from the viewpoint of the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And I'll be talking about how having a accurately biblical worldview makes the gospel fundamentally apocalyptic in nature. Welcome to Middle Ground. The report is in. everybody thank you for joining us this week this week we have a special guest host this is matt he is a member of my church watermark fort worth and he is also a student at dallas theological seminary and we're excited to see the input that he's going to bring this week and some of the insight that is going to come from the this book that he's been studying shalom goyan it's good to be here all right but first, we are going to talk about the current event side of things, which is that Donald Trump is being impeached, and it is a again. Really, again, the only the only president to be impeached twice, and potentially the only president to be impeached after leaving office. He is certainly a a man of firsts, isn't he? Absolutely. So. I think that this impeachment offers a really fascinating way of exploring the human condition and to that end i've found two articles for us that are opinion pieces written from very different sides of the political aisle one of them is from the atlantic and the headline is there is no defense only complicity republican senators are shrinking before the eyes of the whole country and then the other one is from the daily wire which is a very conservative outlet and it's headlined Trump Jr. tells GOP to get tough. If Democrats are playing hardball, then we got to play hardball. And this is cliche to say, but you know, we have entered into a time in American history where tribalism is as strong as it's ever been. And I'm not going to say we are more divided than we've ever been because the country at one point was literally at war with itself. But we certainly have found ourselves siloed into sources of information, sources of opinion, and factions that are constantly at war with each other in the political stage and the cultural stage. And as Christians, it is our job to take a step back from that from being so invested in all of it and really take a look at kind of what the root issues are behind it. And step one, we have to recognize as Christians that we believe that humans have imperfect judgment. We have the ability to reason, but our ability to reason is imperfect because of the fall. We are sinful and therefore every time that we make a decision, there is an element of that decision that's being made out of selfishness or lack of information, something problematic like that. And because of that, there are two truths that arise that become very hard to accept. When we disagree with people, even on important issues, sometimes the person we disagree with is coming to their conclusion in good faith. And then the other one is that when we agree with someone on an important issue, even though they are coming to the same conclusion as us, 
they may be doing so for the wrong reasons or in bad faith. And I think that that first truth is summarized so very clearly by these two articles. So I'll walk through them with you, Matt. Uh, the first one, like I said, there is no defense only complicity. It's out of the Atlantic, which is a popular magazine. The author is David Frum, and this is datelined the 10th of February, 2021. And the focus of this article is Senator Marco Rubio. He's a senator from Florida. He was a presidential candidate in 2016 for the Republican nomination, ended up uh, losing to Trump in that race, of course. But the point being made in this article is that Rubio, since that time in 2016, has consistently defended Trump, has voted with Trump, and they describe this as him, quote, abasing himself again and again to defend Trump. And a little later, it says, quote, in his February 9th video, a senator who often speaks out against authoritarian corruption in China, Cuba and Venezuela positioned himself as its apologist here at home, dismissing accountability for the January 6th attacks as a waste of our time. And they talk about how in the video, he looked kind of miserable as he was saying it. They claim that he is one of those politicians that just isn't good at lying or having guile. And so if he actually feels that something is wrong, you can see it directly on his face. But they go on to say, quote, those feelings are not leading Rubio to do the right thing. He is already committed to doing the wrong thing, as will so many other Senate Republicans. And then finally, it gets to talking about the actual impeachment. Um, at, this at the time of the writing, the House impeachment managers had brought their case against Trump by showing videos of the January 6th riots juxtaposed with Trump's rhetoric over the past several months. And basically, he makes the claim that these, quote, horrifying real-time audio and video recordings shuttered any good faith defense of Trump on the merits of the case. And that's really the key of this article, that there is no good faith defense of Trump. And he says that more explicitly in the next paragraph, quote, there is no defense, there is only complicity, whether motivated by weakness, fear, or shared guilt. Then speaking of the people who he calls weak in the Senate, the weak will be no less weak for being shamed by their weakness. And so, you know, that really points to that first truth that I said, that people who disagree with you might be doing so out of good faith. And David Frum here is making the case that the people in the Republican Senate who disagree with him on impeachment, none of them can be doing so out of good faith. There is no good faith defense. So they must all be weak, fearful, or guilty themselves. And that brings us to the next article that I have, which is from the opposite tack, the opposite corner. So this is an article out of the Daily Wire, which is a website um, that is rather popular in conservative circles. They have podcasts and various other media outlets, but um, this is an article written by them. And the headline is Trump Jr. tells GOP to get tough. If Democrats are playing hardball, then we got to play hardball. And it's basically reporting on an interview that Donald Trump Jr. did on Fox News where he was talking with Sean Hannity. And the most interesting part to me is this quote that they have from Trump Jr. So he says, quote, they're all excited to be able to grandstand, to be able to selectively edit, 
to do their faux outrage on a global scale with TV and free airtime. That's what this is all about, he continued. I thought that these senators would maybe have something better to do. Maybe they would actually fight for the American people for a change. Maybe they would actually get to the business of helping us through the pandemic. I don't see that happening, and I certainly don't see it happening from the Biden administration. And then Trump Jr. begins to make the case that if all of the Democrats are merely disingenuously grandstanding with this impeachment, that for Republicans, he says, okay, quote, although if they're going to pursue these things, Republicans have to stop trying to play the game differently. We got to play hardball if they're playing hardball. And then he concludes by saying that they are engaged in what amounts to McCarthyism on steroids. And so once again, we see the failure to grasp that first truth. So Donald Trump Jr. believes that anyone who's supporting impeachment is uh, merely grandstanding, merely trying to use a platform to tarnish the reputation of all Republicans, and that this is McCarthyism, which historically refers to um, Joseph McCarthy, who claimed that everyone who disagreed with him was a communist during the Cold War. And so that it's a really fascinating dynamic where you've got both sides claiming that the other side doesn't have a good faith case to make. And that if that's not interesting enough in itself, there's also the impact that these articles are supposed to have on their audience. So the Atlantic is more meant to be read by a, a more liberal audience and the Daily Wire is definitely meant to be read by a more conservative audience. And that's where the second truth comes in. People who agree with us may do so for the wrong reasons because each of those articles contains a grain of truth, I believe. There are Republicans who out of weakness or fear are probably agreeing with Trump more than they probably should. And then there are probably Democrats who are using this as an opportunity to grandstand. But if you're a conservative by disposition, and if you disagree with impeachment on uh, rational grounds, on good faith grounds, you might be more likely to defend somebody who's against impeachment on bad faith grounds. And likewise, if you're more liberal, you might feel like people who are opposing impeachment or doing so on bad faith grounds, but that people who are for impeachment, they're not grandstanding, they're doing it for the right reasons, same as same as you. And so we have to, as Christians, step back and recognize that both of those truths can be true. And that's where the discussion and wisdom comes in, because we have to live in this world as Jesus called us to. And that means that we are coming to conclusions based on wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit, but also that we are loving our neighbors well. And um, as a guide to that, I would point us to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And some notable quotes from that include, love is not arrogant. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. And I especially want to point to the fact that it believes all things, which goes back to that first truth that it's important for us as Christians to step back and recognize that people are oftentimes making arguments out of good faith based on the best information and wisdom that they have. So what are your thoughts on this whole situation, Matt? Well, I think the... The, the, the fundamental thing that we got to remember at the end of the day is sometimes it's, it's a thought I have that I, that I daydream about 
that there will come a time when Trump will be a distant memory and when all of the political situation that we're in today will be a distant memory. It'll be history. It'll be in the past. And as you can probably tell, as you may have noticed as you've read history, we tend to take a more critical lens when we look backwards. You can see the overall way that all of the events unfolded. And we tend to have a, a little bit more of a judgmental lens of, you know, were these people doing the right thing or were these people doing the wrong thing? And I think when we look back at kind of the way evangelicals or the way Christians have navigated the political situation right now, there's going to be a, a lot of, I think there, we will, we'll, we'll face a lot of, of a harsh judgments, basically just based off of the fact that we, we played into this dynamic incredibly uh, we would just kind of pick our tribe and pick our side and just dogmatically pursue it even when it just takes us to um, some pretty odd places and pretty interesting uh, dynamics of a bunch of evangelical christians for instance you know flocking to the side of maybe somebody who uh, it probably wouldn't be controversial to say uh, trump himself is not necessarily particularly religious or uh, particularly spiritual uh, especially in the way that he lives his life. And so just as, as, as we find ourselves mm -hmm. in that camp, I think there, you know, there's a certain amount of self-awareness. I think it would be helpful for us to have just to be aware of, you know, what, what are we doing? What game are we playing? Um, are we just dogmatically kind of jumping into everything? People on one side of the aisle say it's completely correct, completely true. Uh, and if, does that lead us to even violate our conscience mm -hmm. sometimes when we, for instance, when we hear we got to play, you know, if they're going to play hardball. We got to play hardball. What lens should we view that statement from? Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds pretty much the, the, the immediate thing that comes to my mind when I hear that is Jesus telling us to turn the other cheek. When someone strikes us, you turn to him the other. And so that's the exact opposite of what Donald Trump Jr.'s statement was. In and fact, so, Donald Trump Jr. in later in that article actually talks about the fact that conservatives have been turning the other cheek for decades and that that has caused them to lose all of these things in the political and cultural sphere. And he says that in the interest of winning, that we have to actually meet them on their level, which not only goes against the words of Jesus, like you were saying, while directly quoting them, it also goes against that first Corinthians verse that I said, that love finds no joy in unrighteousness, right? And he is right here talking about how, well, if they're going to find joy in unrighteousness, then we got to do that too, because the ultimate value that we hold is victory in a political or cultural sense, rather than increasing the kingdom of God. And if the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of Christ, which a lot of people would claim, then it's really it would be really concerning if the party of Christ was explicitly turning down the words of Christ. Yeah, and I think that that fundamental for us to kind of get into that idea uh, that winning comes at the expense of potentially even our values sometimes for us to actually do that and go down that path is i think this uh hypocritical and i think history itself would view that in a very critical very critical lens and i think overall especially i remember 
hearing about this a lot during the racial unrest uh, that we had in this country over the past you know, summer and all the, event, the, the months after that. Um, discussions about, you, know, you often hear about, val you know, there are values that the New Testament would be speaking to about treating people fairly and equally and with dignity and respect, but it's a frustrating truth to both sides uh, that the words of Jesus are, are really all of the Bible. Very rarely do they are they advocating for political reform. You know, you'll hear Jesus talking about treating people with love, but he's not advocating taking over Rome and making the Roman government more fair. He's speaking to the church, and if anything, his message is apolitical and, and not really, I would even say, interested in politics. Uh, and so taking that fact and applying it to how do we navigate politics today, I think it puts us in a, in a, in a tough spot. And we have to want to see our values in place in the world, but also understand that we're called not to be controlling governments and, and trying to create our kingdom here on this earth, which is an important fact. And I think that's just kind of encapsulated in being in the world, but not of it. at the end of the day we're not trying to recreate God's perfect utopia here. Uh, and if we think that that's what our goal is, then yeah, we would be going all, all in on, on political reform or trying to enforce our values even on other people. Mm -hmm. And that will just lead us to hypocrisy to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of us trying to build God's kingdom here on earth through radical spiritual means rather than political means, uh, your topic today really starts to address the this idea of how, of how God's kingdom kind of intersects with our own. So why don't you tell me about that and what you've discovered in, um, I believe, a book you've been reading? Yeah, yeah. So I've been reading, well, it's, it's been some theology I've been chewing on for the past few years and started reading this book that I highly recommend for everybody. And uh, it's called The Gospel of Christ Crucified. And it's by John Harrigan. And it is fantastic. I don't, I, I would say like most things, I don't agree with everything this guy says. Um, there there are, are parts where I think he, he, he goes a little too far, but he presents this image of the gospel that I think is is desperately needed in the church today and is something that I would say a lot of Christians want need to be more familiar with. It's, it's, a, it's a concept that is, I think, vital uh, into how churches do ministry today. Uh, and it's something that will, I think, actually distance us a little bit from the situation we were just talking about, trying to feel like our, our fate, the fate of the kingdom of God is tied to American politics or something like that. And so the idea kind of starts with uh, just the concept of a biblical worldview and, and what does that look like? Taz, if, if pretend you're just the average Christian, you're, the, you're the, the stereotypical Christian that I run into in church on a Sunday morning. If I was to come up to you and say, hey, you know, could I uh, get into a spaceship and just fly to heaven? Like if I just went through outer space, would I eventually get to heaven and see God and just be able to hang out with him? Could I physically go there? What would your response to that be? I'd say probably not because heaven's more like a, a spiritual realm or something in a different dimension. So I don't think it exists in, in, our, in our space of reality. 
Yeah. So, so expand on that. You think would so as as opposed to our world, which is like physical and material, and it's a place that you can travel to. Heaven is like spiritual. What what, what would you say spiritual means? Well, the the Bible says that God is spirit, and I guess that you know a spiritual, a purely spiritual being doesn't have a physical form, right? And yeah. so um, God didn't have a physical form until he came to earth as Jesus. And so if we've got God, the father and the Holy spirit, you know, in existence as Trinity somewhere, then it's probably not in a physical realm. And it just wouldn't make sense for us to be able to travel to heaven before like we die. Like that would just be weird. Right. Yeah. And so fundamentally spirit or spiritual uh, means not physical, maybe ethereal or somehow substantively different than the world you and I experience every day. And then the next logical question is, so when we die, what happens? Where do we go? We go to heaven or hell. Exactly. And so going to heaven or going to hell is leaving this place and going to a spiritual otherworldly kind of place. And so my gospel hopes, like if I have salvation, what my hope is, my hope is not of this world, right? So I have this right. hope that is to go to this spiritual otherworldly place where I can, can become a spiritual being. Not the natural of, world, a supernatural world. Yeah, going to a supernatural world, a supernatural place, and I get to become a spiritual being. And that's, that's what our hope is, right? Going to heaven when we die. Absolutely. And I would say that this is, this is the Christianity of 99.5% of, of the world out there. And something I remember even when I was a little kid when I was reading the Bible for the first time when I was in high school I remember experiencing the frustration of doesn't really seem to be in the Bible much like mm -hmm. there's very 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 little discussion of going to heaven or experiencing the spiritual realm and I remember feeling that kind of frustration or that that dissonance and what this book speaks to is completely ripping out all of those kinds of, of presuppositions or those kinds of assumptions that we're making about the world and actually presenting what the actual biblical worldview is. And it's a lot of deconstruction to get to get there. And so the, the first thing, you know, I would I would talk about that I'd say is one of the more helpful things that the book gives is it explains a lot of of the history of Greek philosophy and Plato and all of these guys. And so real quickly, I'll just kind of lay it out. You know, you have this, you have this guy, Plato, back in, back in uh, the classical Greek era. And he kind of comes out and he presents this idea that reality, basically, is, is split up into two different realms, if you will. You have this, this world that we live in. That's the perceptual world. It's the world that we interact with. It's the material world. The universe as we see it. And that's the perceptual world that we interact with. But everything in it is, is broken, right? I mean, that's just a valid observation. Everything in it mm -hmm. is corrupted and broken. It breaks down and it dies. And so what Plato imagined was there's this other realm, this perfect place, this perfect realm called the intelligible realm, the intelligible world. And it's the world where we we see a perfect version of everything that we see here on earth. And so imagine on earth, we have trees 
that in in the perceptual in, in the intelligible realm rather we would instead see the perfect tree the mm. perfect concept of what a tree could really be perfect and what the, the word that plato used to describe this is it's, it's the form it's it's the realm of the forms basically okay. the perfect version of everything that we see here on earth that perfect version of that mm. thing is called the form of that thing is Plato also the source of the that concept of what we see is shadows on a cave wall and there's something more real outside the cave? Exactly. That was the the image that he used to kind of describe that. The way he kind of tried to put this dynamic in a little image for us was imagine what we are is we're we're like trapped in a cave. We spent our whole lives chained up in a cave. And we're seeing shadows on a wall moving in front of us because there's some sort of light behind us we can't turn around we can't see we can just see shadows on a wall and so that's what we're experiencing mm -hmm. and what the realm of the forms is that's the outside world that's where the light's actually coming from the real thing the real place is actually just projecting an image that's what we see mm -hmm. and so what we what we see is what what plato's kind of claiming is that this this, this realm of the forms this perfect ideal place that's actually more real than this material world that we live in that's mm. the perfect place where everything is the perfect form and yet the way that he described it was it's also not material it's spiritual it's ethereal it's fundamentally not physical mm -hmm. and so what we see is is that kind of dynamic kind of creates this this kind of dichotomy of this the the spiritual is being perfect and and ideal whereas mm -hmm. things that are material and physical are dirty or corrupted or, mm -hmm. or just temporary and somehow not spiritual and so that was greek philosophy and honestly by the time you get to jesus day by the time you get to the first century a.d um, we often think of, of greeks as worshiping zeus and poseidon and all those guys and and there were still plenty of people who did and that was still the popular kind of folk religion of the day but all intelligent educated intellectual people at the time in the greek speaking world they were in that realm the philosophical plato kind of realm where they were thinking about platonic philosophy and all the kind of greek philosophies that butt off of that where they were thinking of of that kind of world of a, of a spiritual perfect place and a material kind of imperfect place and so when christianity is booming and spreading all over the Roman Empire. That's kind of the the stage that they're in. That's the the cultural the, water that they're the cultural water that they're wading in is is a, is a world that's dominated by Plato's philosophy and all kinds of Greek philosophy that that play with that idea. And so what will we see happen is centuries later after the death of Jesus, Christianity is booming. It's spreading all over all over the Mediterranean world and we see people uh, tended to, tended to have been in it would tend to be in Egypt and Alexandria mm -hmm. which is a big center where a lot of the platonic philosophers would be they would kind of very intentionally be making the attempt to take that Greek philosophy take Christianity and kind of blend them together a little bit and they were pretty overt about it. They were saying, we think the Greeks, we think Plato had a lot of wisdom. And so we're gonna try to fuse that with the Christian message and create this new thing. And so then what do they do? 
right? You take our concept of salvation, you take our concept of heaven and hell, and does that kind of play well with the whole spiritual otherworldly realm and this physical material one? You can kind of graph that in pretty easily, right? And so they very intentionally, particularly as a guy named Origen, and then Clement of Alexandria was the other one, where they intentionally kind of co-opted the Christian message to match Plato's sort of dynamic more. And that kind of created this new, I would say, kind of bastardized version of, of Christianity where we talk about heaven as a spiritual, ethereal, non-material place where when I die, I go to heaven and I, well, what's the image, right? I float on a cloud and mm -hmm. I play a harp and I just have this really sanitized spiritual existence. And God exists with me, but in a spiritual kind of not physical way. We're like mm -hmm. ghosts up there. And this physical realm is fleshly, right? It's, it's, it's don't, don't listen to the ways of the, the flesh or the material world. Mm -hmm. And that's fundamentally sinful. And so that's the kind of new version of Christianity that starts to kind of develop. By the time we get to, it really kind of boomed when you get to Augustine. That's the default version of Christianity that we see in the world today. It's going to heaven when you die, right? And what this book then kind of goes to do is, if, so if that's not true, what is? What's the actual biblical message? Right. And it is a lot different. And it's a, a much different worldview. And so what you kind of see in the biblical worldview is it, it, it feels a little strange. It feels a little alien. But you see in Genesis 1, God comes and he, notice how there's a lot of water involved. Yeah. <laughs> he's floating over water and then he's like separating water on top and below and it's all this water stuff and that was always kind of awkward but basically what they kind of en en envisioned the universe to be in the ancient israelite worldview the actual biblical worldview was imagine the whole universe the whole realm of reality it's all like a bubble it's a giant bubble there was in the beginning there was water and God comes to this water. Did he create the water? I don't, like, that's just a whole nother thing. But he comes, to, <laughs> he comes to where he wants to create creation. And he basically just makes a giant bubble, if you will, in the midst of all this water. And in all that water, he creates the earth. And then he creates the heavens. Well, what are the heavens? Well, it's, it's helpful to imagine in, in the ancient Israelite world, in the ancient world, you look up at the sky at night and you see all these stars, right? We don't, here in the big city, we don't, we, we see all about like three stars. But back then, or if you've ever been out far away from civilization and actually seen a real night sky, you see it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's rather spectacular, yeah. It's awe-inspiring. And the ancient people weren't dumb. They knew that all of those things in the sky were other worlds, were other places that you could go to. They knew that. And so they looked up, you can only imagine just in an ancient imagination, just looking up and seeing all these stars and all these places. And so they were like, those are the heavens. So it was a very vague concept. It was a very right. kind of just look up and you just see that's 
the heavens. And so mm-hmm. every time you see the heavens, every time you see heaven in the older New Testament, just imagine you're out at night, you're looking up and you're seeing the stars and you're just going up there, somewhere up there. And so what they imagined is they just walked out and they looked up and they saw all of that. And they say, God is up there. He's up in the heavens somewhere. He's in the highest one, whichever one that is. He's in the highest of those places. And so what they kind of envisioned was you have the earth and then above that was just the heavens, which I guess we would call outer space now. And somewhere there, there are different levels of those heavens, realms of those heavens, but it's all continuous and you can just travel through them. And then you eventually get to God's home, which is the highest of those heavens. And God lives there. And that's the actual biblical world that we live in. So it's, it's the complete opposite of, of kind of what Plato was playing around with. It's an actual physical one creation type of place. And so God lives in the creation that he made. And it's in that kind of a realm that sin comes in and the world is broken. And that's the world we live in. And so when salvation is offered to us, it's a completely different thing from escaping and going to the spiritual otherworldly place. You actually take this lens and apply it to everything you see in the New Testament. And you see it's about, it's fundamentally about Jesus coming back and restoring this broken creation that God himself lives in. And so we see God is coming. Jesus is coming back. He's going to restore and cleanse the earth in some way when he comes back and he's going to reestablish his creation like he created in the beginning and he's going to walk with us here on the earth and so you see the 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 image of salvation there is is ultimately much it's, it's very physical it's material it's the opposite of, of what we would call spiritual mm-hmm. it's the hope that jesus would come back here on this earth and he already lives in the creation he made, but actually, instead of being far away, he's with us here on the earth. And it's in a physical creation that he's doing that. And so all of our hopes for salvation are all revolving around Jesus living here with us on the earth in a renewed, restored creation when he comes back and he raises us all from the dead. And so it's a very different image than we tend to see from the the stereotypical going to heaven when Mm -hmm. we die thing it's actually i'm going to die and then jesus is going to come back and raise me from the dead here and so my hopes for salvation my hopes for an an afterlife are actually earthly it's it's the complete opposite it's it's based here on this earth that i get to walk around and enjoy right now but it's marred by sin it's that when that sin is removed and jesus restores this place i get to live with him and get to live in his kingdom here on the earth in a really physical sense. And that's something that my mind can actually comprehend. So it's a much more potent version of the gospel, I would say. So it's like when you're looking at a tree, that's not a a physical representation of some spiritual tree somewhere. That's just a, a tree that's subject to, you know, what we in modern times would call disease and um, genetic abnormalities and stuff. And there is a future that we are looking forward to where those problems won't be there, where trees will be like in the garden, good to eat from, but also pleasing to look at where um, thorns and thistles won't come up from the ground and make work difficult. And it's more like we're, instead of moving from garden to fallen earth to a 
um, a future where we are unchained from our reliance on a, a physical realm to going to some spiritual cloud place, like you were saying, but it's more like, no, we're just going to a, another garden. That's even better than the first garden because we all get to be there together. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not even, it's even better than the first garden because it's not even really a, a walled garden. It's the whole earth. Mm-hmm. And so we get to enjoy an expanded kingdom that spreads out all over the earth. And I think what's also very interesting is, is this also makes sense when you look at uh, the way the New Testament actually talks about salvation. Is it's deeply and ultimately apocalyptic in nature. It's about there's a day coming when Jesus is coming back. He's mm-hmm. going to wipe out the sin. And so it's, it's all looking forward to this coming apocalypse here on the earth where Jesus and it's not an apocalypse like you see in the movies <laughs> where it just really seems to just get off on violence or destruction. It's about cleansing and restoring the broken place that we're in right now. And so, yeah, it's that God actually made me to enjoy going out in nature and walking out in the mountains or fishing or whatever it is. I'm mm-hmm. meant to actually enjoy those physical quote unquote earthly things mm-hmm. because I'm a, fundamentally quote-unquote earthly being i was made to be here Mm -hmm. that kind of answers a lot of like weird questions like you know so when elijah like rose to heaven was ascended and you know he was taken off on a chariot into heaven that doesn't even make sense if it's like oh so he did that and then like evaporated into a mist or something and yeah you would have expected something more like obi-wan kenobi or yoda disappearing into into nothing but instead he actually goes somewhere and and that's a great point honestly the way way you hear the force talked about in in star wars it kind of reflects that same kind of worldview it's a very common thing it's a very common way people talk about spirituality um to almost to the point to where words like spirit or spiritual or supernatural aren't even really helpful to say or to use when you're actually talking about real biblical Christianity. Yeah. It changes the way we talk about salvation and the way we talk about death or the way we talk about uh, the gospel uh, Mm -hmm. fundamentally at a deep level. Yeah. And one last point on this subject, but um, this also has implications not only for how we view the apocalyptic future um, of our salvation, but also the idea that what we are moving toward is not a a spiritual release or a spiritual liberation, but instead a a cleansing and um, the kingdom of God being completely over the whole earth. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot in the gospels, and he talks as if he is currently in the process of establishing the kingdom. He, uh, when he sent out the 72 in Luke chapter 10 to spread the word, the only message he gives for them is to heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so when he rose from the dead, the kingdom with him as our king was established here on earth. And so we are not in a hopeless battle of waning influence on earth that's someday going to end with us being released and sent off into space or beyond space or another dimension somewhere instead we are members of a kingdom who will someday get to see the final victory completed whenever jesus does return and so 
this ha- it's not just about your salvation and the someday of it this has implications for how we live our life right now because every action that we take that um, spreads the love of Christ that introduces more people to him and the truth about him is actually a victory for the kingdom that uh, will ultimately be completely fulfilled by his return. Yeah, absolutely. And you, the way the Bible uses, the image that the Bible uses is, is we're, we're in the kingdom now and it's a kingdom that's at war mm-hmm. uh, with the kingdoms of you know, either darkness or the kingdom of, of Satan or however you wanted to call it. My favorite version of it was Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Mm-hmm. He uses the image that he, he rules over literally the air that we breathe. Mm-hmm. And so we're in a kingdom that is at war with another one. And yet it might seem like we're losing it, but what we're promised and we're mm-hmm. promised ultimately is that when Jesus comes back, he's going to mm-hmm. turn, turn the tables, if you will, mm-hmm. and he'll change things and actually physically establish that kingdom here on mm-hmm. earth to where we will be a part of it. And that changes the way that you talk to people when they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that the deepest implications I've seen for this is it changes the way you talk to people when they're hurt. Because if you're, if somebody is hurting because they're going through a breakup or they're going through a death in the family or they're going through something like that, if, if, if you subscribe to a very platonic version of Christianity where you're you know, talking about spirits and talking about going to a, an ethereal otherworldly place you can sometimes just frankly be annoying to talk to <laughs> it's like <laughs> these things if you're going through a breakup or you're going through a divorce or you're going and then you're just concerned with earthly things man and it's you know people such as myself even have to resist the urge to punch you whereas if you're talking about death it's like hey death's a good, a good thing right you you will talk about death being a good thing where now they're with God in, in their place they were always meant to be. And that's just neither one of those things is, is, is how you see the actual biblical version of Christianity interacting with the world. Uh, it, it enables you to instead say, no, like the pain you're feeling is because we weren't, ma- we weren't made to be in a place like mm-hmm. this. We weren't mm-hmm. meant to be in a, a world that has this much disease or death or brokenness or broken relationships or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so it speaks to actually the reality that we live in is not the reality we were made for. And so that dissonance makes sense. And you can actually speak compassionately to people in their suffering. And that changes the way that you share the gospel, which changes the way we do everything. Yeah. And so just to tie both of our topics kind of into a nice little bow, because of sin, we live in a broken world, right? We live in a physical world that is marred, and that's going to result in um, all sorts of problems, but we have a hope because of this kingdom that has been established that will ultimately prevail. And our kingdom is at war, like you said, but it is not at war with people. People are never our enemies, and as Christians, we can be tempted to dip into tribalism and to view other people as our enemies that we need to fight and sometimes go against our moral principles to defeat. But our enemy is actually that brokenness of the world, the, the evil forces, spiritual forces in the heavens, as um, Paul says in Ephesians, or the, the prince of the power of the air, um, that, it, that is our true enemy. And he sometimes leads us into acting like we are each other's enemies, but... Um, through the power of Christ and through our 
citizenship in this kingdom, we have the ability to move aside from that very limited understanding and step into this broader, this broader kingdom narrative of hope for the future and recognition of the of what the true causes behind the problems that we face are. So thank you all for joining us this week. Thank you, Matt, for the brilliant insights that you brought and just the the importance of that topic. I hope that uh, gives people the opportunity to really think through why they have hope and what the root of that hope is in. Next week, Sam will be back and we will be going over our study in Ezra. We will be in chapter seven. So looking forward to that. And then in another couple of weeks, We will have another episode of Middle Ground and continue to discuss things that are happening in the world and how they relate to our Christian worldview. And Matt, you are welcome back anytime. Perhaps we can get an episode of the three of us together sometime or something like that. But appreciate having you, man. Absolutely. Love doing it. Hey, Matt. Hey, what's up? Have I ever told you what my first name is? Uh, I mean, I've heard it, but... So my first name is actually Jacob. I like going by Taz because that's my middle name. And your last name is Jacob's. So we both share a namesake in the biblical story of Jacob. Okay. And that's cool that um, he's in the Bible and stuff. But Jacob sometimes did some pretty messed up stuff. And that is is true, yeah. (laughs) In the same way that after Franklin Roosevelt was president three times in a row, they put in a constitutional amendment saying that you can't do that anymore. Um, Jacob did something that was later, um, a law was put in against it in the Bible. So uh, in Leviticus 18.18, it says, you are not to marry a woman as a rival to her sister and have sexual intercourse with her during her sister's lifetime. And so I think that Uh, Some people were paying attention to the fact that that whole Rachel and Leah situation did not (laughs) work out in healthy ways, ended up with a with a dude getting thrown down a pit and sold into slavery and stuff. So they decide not going to do that anymore. Um, Sorry, Jacob. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you all once again for joining us this week on Middle Ground. Front Porch Report is a passion project by a group of people who love Jesus and want to spread his word, using in-depth Bible studies and Christian worldview analysis of current events in our world. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and share this episode with your friends so that we can continue to spread the word. We'll catch you next week. Stay safe out there. Yeah, so all right, we're gonna have to take a pause. Uh, <laughs> my, my, so you're actually like sort of ahead. Of, you're you're basically kind of one step ahead of me. Dust returning to dust, and you know, if we were going with a, a Greek philosophical framework, then sorry, I'm gonna, I'm making your point for you again.
still pretend like you're 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 like the average Christian right now. I'm gonna wrap this like like 